0: thanks for listening to the toronto legends podcast i am your host andrew applebaum my guest today is gary chowan hang on a second gary who my commitment to you dear listener is to bring you only the Toronto famous, and you might be saying, who the heck is Gary Challen?" So let me give you the backstory. Fans of this podcast, all three of you, including my mother, will know that I recently interviewed comedy legend John Biner. When I asked for his recollections of shooting six seasons of his bizarre TV show right here in Scarborough's Agent Court CFTO studios, John told me that his absolutely fondest memory was becoming dear, dear friends with local hairstylist Gary Chowen. It turns out that Gary has been a legendary Yorkville hairstylist for over 50 years, his only absence from Toronto being his Hollywood years in the 1970s as Cher's personal therapist. Yes, that Cher. Sonny and Cher Cher. On top of the Hollywood food chain Cher. They say that hairdressers always have the best stories, so buckle up and let's together learn why Gary Chowan is indeed a Toronto legend. Gary, thanks for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Hey, it's a pleasure to join you, Andrew. I'm here in Toronto and I'm
1: raring to go to give your viewers, listeners some great stories.
0: Well, that sounds great. You've had a long time salon in Yorkville. How is business these days as we try to return somewhat to normal?
1: Oh Well, I'll tell you, I mean, they always said that the restaurant business took a big hit during the pandemic, but hairdressers are right up there with it. Um, we're probably down 50% in business, most hairdressers. And for the reason I, I'm assuming is that most people are working from home, at least 75 80%. So if you lived in Scarborough, Don Mills, Steeles Avenue, and you'd come downtown to work in Toronto every day, you'd come get a haircut. So why would you get out of your comfy Lulu lemons now to get in this ridiculous traffic we have in this city with no parking when you can go to your local mall 15 minutes away, free parking, get a decent haircut, you're on Zoom, and there was no balls, no galas, no weddings, no fundraisers, no nothing. So you put 10% out of each of those, and hairdressers are really down in business. But I'm noticing a lot more people starting to come back. I'm seeing clients I haven't seen in a few years, which is a good sign. Absolutely. So hopefully things are recovering. But it's been actually kind of a nice break from not being crazy busy all the time where, you know, you go in at 7 in the morning and crawl out of there 12 hours later with no lunch on a good day.
0: Well, let's go back all the way and get the Gary Challenge story. You are, in fact, a native Torontonian. Where were you born and what neighborhood were you raised in?
1: I was actually born on the original Mount Sinai Hospital on Yorkville Avenue. And after living in the United States for years and coming back, I think I am now officially the oldest living relic in Yorkville. (laughs) (laughs) I should get an award for that. I should be the mayor of
0: Yorkville. I think you probably are. Now, you started your hairdressing career at the tender age of 13 as a shampoo boy at Yorkville's infamous Caruso's Salon. Part beauty parlor, part party palace, Caruso's was three floors of glamour on Bloor Street West. Uh, Tell us about Caruso's and apparently why it was so significant that the TTC streetcar even accommodated you.
1: (laughs) Well, in, in those days, Andrew, in the 60s, I think there was probably three great famous salons in the world. There was Alexander in Paris, Kenneth in New York, who was the big society hairdresser, and Caruso's here in Toronto. Um, it was an amazing, amazing emporium. Uh, we had a staff of like fifty people. There was three receptionists lined up, and I can. Re- we were right across in the Royal Conservatory of Music on Bloor Street near Bedford, and the TTC streetcar on Bloor Street in those days. For those of you who may remember that, I doubt uh, the stop was at Avenue Road and then Bedford, and we were right in the middle. And the conductor would actually stop the streetcar halfway in between those outside the salon and yell Caruso's, and it would literally empty. I mean, it was just a, it was a go-to destination for famous people. People would fly in from all over the world. When I used to check the appointment book for the next day for Mr. Caruso, I saw Mrs. So-and-so flying in from Paris today to get her haircut. cut. Uh, you never knew who you were going to see when you went to work every day. And, and Mr. Caruso staffed it with the most incredible incredible talented hairdressers from around the world you know and everybody wore suits and ties three-piece Lou Miles suits mm. which is probably what got me into the business because these guys all drove big beautiful convertibles they were dating all the best models in the city
0: geez how bad is this for a career <laughs> that's a that's a good start and as you say this was a high society salon the hairdressers were rock stars. And talk a little more about Yorkville in the swinging 60s.
1: Well, I mean, after work, you could pretty well go to any club you wanted to. The discos were starting to happen. There was great coffee houses. You know, there's the, the great old coffee mill on Bloor Street in the old Lothian Mews where, you'd, you know, you'd see society people, you'd see hippies, you'd see beatniks smoking hash outside in the patio. I can remember one day the owner... Uh, she was going out with this Hungarian who looked like this Hungarian god with this hair, and he literally came walking into the place, and he had a lion on a leash, and it didn't face too many people. I'll never forget seeing that. It was amazing. Yeah, it was quite the place in the 60s, unlike now, where it's all gone corporate, of course. It's condo-centric right now. As as I call Yorkville nowadays the the, the in crowd, they're all in debt, insignificant, totally uninteresting to me,
0: you know? Well, you've seen it the whole time there, so you're allowed to make that proclamation. It's changed and not for the better. Now, Gary, you used your Caruso's experience doing hairstyling for U.S. network TV programs that were being shot at CFTO's Agent Court Studios. How did you get involved with this, and how did you use this to kind of build your network with U.S. producers?
1: Well, I I think I was about 15 at the time there, and... Um, two producers, Alan Bly and Chris Beard, who you know did um, the Smothers Brothers, Laugh, and Dick Van Dyke. They came to Toronto to shoot at the old CFTO studios, or as we used to call it, "See If I Care." Much better name for the studio, we thought. Um, to shoot the Andy Williams summer replacement show, which was the Ray Stevens show. Okay. You know the guy who sang "Guitar Zan," and. Um, So we got hired to do the hair for it. So uh, I met these people, uh, Alan Bly and Chris Beard, and became close. And um, one thing led to another. And next thing you know, after that, um, a dear friend, Jimmy Dale, who was very good friends with Alan Bly, who went down to become the musical director in Los Angeles. Um, I literally got a phone call. I guess it was like 2 o'clock in the morning. I was living in a little apartment with my father asking me how soon can you be in los angeles mm-hmm. and i said tomorrow and they go good because i didn't even ask why i just knew i'm going to hollywood so uh they said good there's a ticket at the airport be here and i packed up everything called my employer said i won't be in for a while i'm going to california and i arrived i was picked up and i was taken to sunny and share's house
0: this uh, is, which uh... they had
1: just bought from the old from tony curtis this I came from this little apartment in Toronto to this mega mansion and was introduced to Sonny and Cher. I had actually met them once before because the original pilot for Sonny and Cher was shot here at CFTO. Oh, wow. A year or two prior, but it didn't go anywhere then.
0: So So this was um, in in 1971, Gary, Hollywood beckoned. You were 17 years old and you started as Cher's personal hairdresser on this summer replacement series called, The Sunny and Cher Comedy Hour. Your assignment was to work on Cher's naturally wavy long hair. And what what did you do with this naturally wavy long hair? Well,
1: I mean, I, I, I first they took me to see Bob Mackey. You know, I had to collaborate with Bob, who was just starting his career. He worked at a place up on Melrose Avenue called Elizabeth Courtney, which is a very famous dress salon in L.A. I can remember walking in there. And there's Raquel Welsh being fitted. There's Diana Ross. I mean, on and on and on. And I mean, I'm in awe of this, of course. Um, So they took me to meet Bob and we collaborated. And then they took me to uh, CBS and showed us the studio. And it was a very, I I had no fear in those days. And it was, I found out later that in those days, it was an old weird law from the 30s or 40s in L.A. that there was no men hairdressers in the studios. All hairdressers were women, and all makeup artists were men. So the lady who, who headed the department at CBS, Television City in Los Angeles, um, she wanted that job, of course, being Cher's hairdresser, and they found out they're bringing some 17-year-old kid from Toronto down. It didn't go over too well with her. And I remember Bob telling me to be very careful because apparently she has it out for you. So, Hmm. blah, blah, blah. I go to CVS. I meet her. I will not give her name. And a lady cannot be nice enough to me. She goes, look, I know you're new in town. Anything I can do to help you, uh, please let me know. Wow. You know, and then I figured, wow, what were they talking about? Nice lady. And then she turned on me. And it turned out I couldn't step foot on stage during the taping. Otherwise, the production company would be fine. So I used to work with the headset off camera. And uh, if I needed her to uh, touch up a wig or something to come off camera, I couldn't step foot on stage. It was very strange. But, um, you know, I mean, you got to consider uh, next to us was, we were in Studio 41 or 43, I can't remember. Then we had All in the Family to my left. I had the Carol Burnett show on my right. Uh, the Merv Griffin show across the hall, The Price is Right. So during my downtime, I'd spend, uh, I'd go over and see what all in the family's rehearsing today, see who's on the Burnett show. It was an incredible playground for a 17, 18-year-old kid.
0: Absolutely. And you had made this transformation of shares, wavy long hair into this sleek curtain. She would she would flip it back as she delivered zingers at her husband, the late Sonny Bono, let's not understate the cultural significance of the hairstyle change that you implemented, Gary. There were only three major TV networks at the time. There was no competing streaming services. Uh, When Cher went to this long, straight hair within a few months, is it safe to say every young girl in America with long, straight hair parted in the middle was the look?
1: Yeah, of course it was. I actually used to get fan mail when when I checked in to work at CBS in the morning. I'd walk by the mail room, and the mail person would hand me fan letters from people all over the country. I thought, this is strange. Uh, I, you know, not being used to that. But, but how I got that look on her, I mean, she had naturally wavy hair. And it's an old trick he used to use. You'd put a, a big roller on the top of somebody's hair, make a side part, and you start wrapping the hair around the head uh, like a mummy. Then you take cheesecloth and bound it around, and you sit on your hair dryer for half an hour, take it out, rewrap it the other way, and pretty well any head, curly head of hair will come out like a sheet of glass. It's just bone straight. Because we didn't have the products that we have now. I didn't have flat irons. Um, setting lotion in those days was flat beer we used to <laughs> use. And and Carling's IGA, I remember, was the, the one of choice. I think that's when hairdressers became drunks because as assistants, we used to have to fill the bottles the night before. and I think we drank half and then we put the other half in the bottle for the stylist the next day. So we didn't have the products that, that we had nowadays. I would have loved to have a high powered blow dryer like I use now and a flat iron and straightening bombs. I mean, it was just bare bones. We did it.
0: And Gary, in addition to not having the current equipment that is high tech, your job on the Sunny and Share set was not easy. They had very elaborately staged skits. There'd be multiple costume changes. You would have to transform Cher from Gypsy Queen to Egyptian Queen in minutes using wigs, hair pieces, and something called falls. I don't even know what a fall is, but the, the equipment's changed so much. Yeah, It yeah. was a high-stress environment it's, for you. It, the, the taping days were very high-stress, but it was so
1: organized for the day. I mean, you know, we'd have production meetings on Monday. I'd meet with Bob Mamaki to see what she's wearing. We'd come up with some visuals, and uh, for the hair, and then I would go home and do all the hair pieces. And so it, it was everything was like you knew at this time she's we're going to be finished that sketch hopefully. And the protocol was off stage, uh, quick change, uh, quick makeup touch up, and then to me. So I had like minutes to get one uh, uh, wig off or another wig on. Or if we were using your own hair. Yeah, it was very stressful. No doubt about that. But, you know, a lot of artistic people thrive under that type of pressure. You know, I mean, you just, as silly as it is, you get the job done. And at the end of the day, you give yourself a little <laughs> round of applause. or Wow, we made it. Let's do it again next week.
0: And, and the adrenaline uh, rush must be something that uh, you get, I guess, used to and you look forward to. Every
1: week. Yeah, it is. It's, it's a drug almost, you know, when you... You hear the, you know, the smell of the grease paint, the roar of the crowd and the applause and, you know, and other people coming up to you from other departments, you know, saying, hey, great job today, Chow, and you did good. If she really looked good or, you know, hugs from Cher after the show, she liked that look. But uh, she knew every look going on. I mean, she, you know, she really oversaw that department. She, she, She knew what she wanted. So we had to deliver, you know, and Bob, I mean, you know, I mean, what can you say about Bob Mackey?
0: Sure. Well, let's talk a little about your working relationship with the iconic designer, Bob Mackey. Together, you were responsible for creating Cher's signature look. We've changed her from hippie to glam diva. In fact, your work inspired the Academy of Television Arts and Science to create a category for the recognition of hairdressing on the Emmy Awards. How would you work together with Bob? Well, like you
1: said, we'd meet every week at his studio for fittings for Cher, you know, to see what she was going to wear and make and everything. And then Bob and I would sit down, you know, we'd look at the sketch and then figure out, okay, so what type of wig do you think Bob? And I mean, I, I you know, I, I asked him more than my own intuition and he just had great insight. And, and together we just came up with a look. And like I said, then I'd go home and start trying trying to create it. I made hair pieces out of, I had cardboard. I had coat hangers and in, in Dinel hair pieces. I had styrofoam. I used socks for padding. You know, I just made up these crazy things, and uh, it all worked. A lot of times, she'd come in. I just plop it on her head because it was already done, and off you go.
0: <laughs> Gary, you were the you were the MacGyver of uh, hairdressing yeah, back true. in the seventies.
1: Yeah, I think I used everything but duct tape in those days <laughs> to to get, to get a good
0: look on her. Now, talk a little more about fittings would take place at a well-known Los Angeles design house called Courtney's, and uh, apparently Fitting Day was was your favorite day.
1: Yes, of course. (laughs) (laughs) And I know what you're going to (laughs) say. Yeah, well, it was uh, pretty amazing. You know, I mean, you know, there you are and there, Cher, just, uh, you know, down to her skivvies. And, um, you know, yeah, I mean, you're you're a young kid, but, you know, sooner or later, you forget all that. You just start concentrating. They're to do a job. Yeah, exactly.
0: Now, uh, talking about Cher and uh, after the television experience and her work with Bob Mackey, she made headlines with her newly nearly nude feathered gown at the 1974 Met Gala. She attended with Bob Mackey. She also had an equally scandalous black sequin look she wore to the 1986 Oscars, which included a tiny crop top, low-slung skirt, and a towering feathered headpiece. Bob Mackie, do you still keep in touch with him today? And, and what are your memories of seeing Cher in these award shows with these outlandish outfits at the time? I, I
1: absolutely loved it. I, Bob went off the rails with some of those looks. And yes, I, I was fortunate enough to, to get together with Bob a while back here. He was in Toronto. And uh, we got together. Uh, we did an interview for the Toronto Star. They wanted us to do a, a great interview. Uh, over cocktails at the Old Four Seasons Bar. And uh, it was also the same day that his dear friend, Bill Blass, the designer, had passed away. So Bob and I had a few uh, martinis in honor of Mr. Blass. But uh, it was great seeing him. I mean, the man doesn't age, you know, and he's still out there doing it, you know. So, yeah, I I, I was very, very taken with Bob. I, I really enjoyed being in his company, and he helped me a lot you know, I, I helped him making his stuff look good too. So it was a, you know, give and take, but I'm going to give him all the credit for Cher's look. He really outdid himself some days. I mean, wow. those costumes, I mean, you know, she plays Southern Bells and I mean, I just looked at these dresses here. How do you come up with that? But yeah. you know, that's what he does.
0: Well, together you were an amazing partnership. The front row seat you had to the sunny and Cher experience. Unfortunately, it did not last. Cher today describes the late Bono as a terrible husband and I'm not sure you have such great sentiments about him either.
1: No, I will admit that Mr. Bono was not one of my favorite people. You know, he was a little Svengali. Um, he called the shots all the time. He wouldn't let... Their, their life consisted from what I saw of you know, going to the studio, going home, that was it. Rehearsals, go home. He really didn't let her out much. And, um, yeah, I think, I mean, you could see things starting to fester by the second season that something's not right here. They, they rarely spoke. You know, after work she'd go his way, she'd go her way. Uh, it was a very toxic work environment. And the whole crew could feel it, but, you know, you couldn't really say anything, even though you know, I was in in the dressing room with her. We were alone a lot, but, you know, I was too young and naive that I really didn't think I was, you know, in any space that I should say anything to her. Mm-hmm. But you, you could tell, you know, it wasn't hard to tell. She was very, very unhappy.
0: It, it sounds know? a little like she was his meal ticket to an extent.
1: A hundred percent. He knew that. I mean, look, Sonny couldn't sing, you know, I mean, he warbled a lot. But, uh, listen, he was a very intelligent man. I mean, you know, I mean, Sonny... You know, when he met Cher, I mean, I, they met at Phil Spector's at, uh, when he was doing the Wall of Sound with, you know, he, he was the coffee boy. He played tambourine in the background. And then one day, this 17-year-old Sherilyn LaPierre shows up, and one thing led to another, and they ended up, you know.
0: This- I want to note from the, uh, the cast of the Sonny and Cher show, it featured two Canadians of note, Murray Langston, Frequently uh, performed using the stage name The Unknown Comic, and uh, he's perhaps best known for his performances on The Gong Show, during which he appeared with a paper bag over his head. What do you remember about Murray? Quick. Yeah,
1: well, let me tell you a quick thing about The Gong Show first. Chris Beard, right, who had created The Gong Show, sitting in my living room at 3 o'clock in the morning here in Toronto, we may have had a libation too much, and he went on to tell me, he says, hey, I got this great idea for a TV show. And he went on to give me the premise of This show, and he says, I'm going to call it the Gong Show. I said, Chris, don't ever tell anybody that again. That is the most stupidest thing I have ever heard in my life. Well, I I know he sold that to Chuck Barris for millions, but uh, yeah, who knew? But uh, Murray loved him, very funny. Him and his partner, uh, um, oh, geez, Freeman King uh, was his comedy partner in those days. And uh, yeah, they were wild, those two. They were very funny. Loved them dearly. And then, of course, we had Billy Van from Toronto. Yes. You know, I mean, how can you top Billy? What a talent. But the best was um, Ted Ziegler, who had the greatest rubber face, and deadpan I've ever seen of anybody. And on auditions for the Sonny and Cher show, in comes Teddy Ziegler. And Chris Beard and Alan Bly said, well, what, what, what have you done before? And they said, he said, Well, I was Johnny Jellybean in Montreal, and they just said, that's it, you got the job, because they knew of this great character. You didn't even have to audition. But, yeah, there was Peter Cullen from Montreal. We had a lot of Canadians on that show. And then, of course, you know, Terry Garr, who I love dearly. God bless Terry. Um, Yeah, we had a lot of talented ensemble cast on that show.
0: Now, Gary, you are known as a hairstyling magician, but even you have said, it's a comb, not a magic wand. How do you keep all your clients happy?
1: Well, that's, yeah, well, the ones who I have to tell that to sometimes, it's always somebody who brings a picture in of uh, something that is so unlike their own hair. And I have to tell them, look, if the if that 20-year-old girl brought a picture of you in and wanted her hair like yours, I can't do that either. <laughs> Miracle Day was yesterday, honey. I'm sorry. I can't do that. And, it's, and people just want the most... Or, or, or celebrities, you know, people bring in a picture of a celebrity. And, you know, I've been at it long enough that I'm just honest with them. I said, oh, you want to look like that person. Well, the plastic surgeon's down the street. You go see him first and then come back and I'll give you a good haircut. Oh, boy. Or they'll say, or they'll say to me, do what you want. Well, the first thing I do is put my scissors and comb down because nine times out of ten, you'll do what you want. And then they'll look at you and they go, it's not what I had in mind. <laughs> I said, well, perhaps when I ask you what you want, you could have told me. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just it's a psychological game you gotta play with clients.
0: Well, honesty is your policy, but I I do want to ask, what is your policy, Gary, on keeping of the secrets? And and what sticky situations have you been put into the middle of in your hairstyling career? Oh boy. Well,
1: not wanting to get into it too much, but a lot of times that well, not a lot, but there's been occasions where I've looked in my appointment book and I see Mrs. So and So coming in, and then I see oh, there's her husband's mistress coming in at the same time to oh, see boy. So you got to phone Mr. So and So, say, look, you better phone one of your women in your life and tell them to cancel because uh, I don't need them both here. Because I have seen it with other stylists that um, the the wife came in and the mistress is there and literally punched her right in the nose because she knew who she was. So yeah, you got to be careful. But that happened. That doesn't happen that much these days.
0: <laughs> <Good>. God, <yeah. laughs> now, Gary, you've worked as a set hairdresser on many well-known television shows, movies, concerts, even political events, both here in Canada and the U.S. You have had what you call the privilege of quaffing the means of so many celebrities. So let's ask about your interactions with some notable names. Let's start with your relationship with John Biner.
1: Wow. what can you say about John? Well, John is my daughter's godfather we we're, we're that close um probably one of the most sweetest, sweetest down to earth, unaffected by his status in the industry. He's just a sweetheart John on set John would rather hang out with the crew than the producers who want to have lunch with him. you know he's happy with the the gaffers and the grips and you know the grunts on the show you know he's just he's so unaffected by everything and you know, he's got a wonderful family, and his wife is wonderful, and yeah, I, I, he's just one of my favorite, favorite all-time people that I've ever had the privilege of meeting, and I've met a lot of people, but yeah, there was just that immediate bond between the two of us, I mean, you know, almost from the first day of rehearsal, and uh, you know, I mean, we came so close after the first or second season, you know, John bought himself an island in Fiji. Nice. Okay. And uh, next thing you know, I get a ticket to uh, Fiji. You now, I got to spend some time just with John. Here we are in the middle of the South Pacific on an island hanging out. I mean, okay, this is good. Yeah, that was fun. We had a few harrowing times, like driving off a cliff on, in, a, in a rainforest and the van rolling over and knocked unconscious in the middle of nowhere. We could still be there. Yeah, we, we've had some experiences together.
0: Well, he certainly speaks of you highly, and I know he'll be uh, interested in this episode for sure. I Another hope so. gentleman, John, if
1: you're listening, pay attention.
0: <laughs> Good words. Another uh, person who came from that bizarre set, the late Bob Einstein. Not oh, only Bob. Super Dave wow. Osborne and Marty yeah. Funkhauser on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah.
1: Okay, so on the Sunny and Share show, Bob and Steve Martin were two of the writers on the show. Oh. Yeah, and it's almost like the old days I knew of on Saturday Night Live with Belushi and Aykroyd. Their offices were down the hall, last door, and there was noises coming out of there. You figure, what are these two up to? And nobody dared go into that office. Well, it was pretty well the same with Einstein and Steve Martin that there was something going on in that room that you don't dare open the door to say, hey, what are you guys doing? They, they were so crazy when they were young. Yeah, I, funny. I didn't
0: know he worked. I didn't know he wrote with Steve Martin. Yeah, they were friends for years, collaborated. Yeah. And uh, on the Bizarre show, Bob's role was not only he was the actual producer of the show, but he played the producer, kind of offsetting some of John Viner's antics. Um, that whole experience of Bizarre, it sounds like it was very freewheeling, unscripted, and I'm sure the atmosphere was exciting.
1: It was so great because Bizarre was probably, I think, one of the first cable shows ever went on the air. Uh, I think it was with Viacom, which became Showtime, if I recall. Yes, you're correct. Yeah. So So, um, we we shot two versions of Bizarre, you know, the one that's people with clothes on. And then (laughs) Tuesday morning was Nudity Day. (laughs) where we had to have a closed set sometimes because it got too busy in the studio, you know, and, uh, you know, they could show breasts and bums and everything with all the skits. So yeah, it it was a very highly charged uh, show to work on the audience, audience, they, uh, you know, they'd be lined up all over CFTO to get in everybody wanted tickets to come see bizarre. You never knew who we had on the show. We had so many funny, great guests on. And uh, and John, I mean, you know, he was just so free-spirited. And, and and the play between him and Bob, I mean, Bob with his deadpan. I mean, Bob is one of the funniest guys you'd ever want to meet in your life. Um, but he could play that deadpan character to John. And they just fed off each other. They, they really were friends and respected each other a lot. Well, so, yeah, that, it, was, it was fun going to the studio. We actually couldn't believe between Bizarre, and then most of us all worked on Super Dave. Um, we couldn't believe that they give us a paycheck every Friday for this. It's <laughs> the best it. kind of job. I said, "Look, look at all the money they're giving us <laughs> every week to have fun." <laughs> you know, when when we when we showed up on location for Super Dave, uh, we had a flag made and would stick it on people's lawns, and on it it said, "The People's Republic of Dave." <laughs> it was great. Oh, so we yeah. knew you knew in your
0: neighborhood. Absolutely, the best kind of job is when you're having fun. Yeah. Gary, you gave Jim Carrey his first job on television. He was 17 years old.
1: Yeah, that was funny. We um, Again, it was one of the first cable shows. And again, my friend Chris Beard, you know, from Sonny and Cher. And um, Chris came to Toronto. They're going to shoot it here. Um, the name of the show, you couldn't use this name now, but in those days it was called the Sex and Violence Family Hour. <laughs> and it was for Playboy. Yep. So we had to go, um, Chris and I actually had to go to strip clubs here in Toronto, which I'd never been in my life.
0: Tough research and assignment.
1: The, yeah, exactly. R&D. And, uh, of course, these girls would say, well, what time does my limousine pick me up? I said, no, no, honey, there's no limousine. No, no, you got to get to the studio on your own. <clears throat> so we needed Canadian content, you know, of the CRTC. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so we went to Yuck Yucks one night. Chris and I, and their performing on stage was this 17-year-old kid who was just ripping the house apart. Unbelievable, crazy act. So went up to him after the set and I said, hey, you know, we're here in Toronto doing this television show. Would you have any interest of being on the show? His eyes lit up. He said, I've never been on a television show. So one thing led to another. And uh, yeah, he came out and we had him on the show doing insane things, chasing women in French maid outfits around and and uh you know I remember being in the hallway at CFTO and and Jim said to me he goes what's Hollywood like I said Hmm. look I said be very very careful I said that town could eat you up well luckily he didn't pay any attention to me and went on to a flourishing great career (laughs) at the time I thought I was giving him good advice but yeah although I think he did go when he was that young and sort of Got sent home, or he, things weren't going. But he did go back. That's when living color and all that, yeah, his career took off. What a talent,
0: huh? What a talent. What, what a talent. He certainly yeah, got so, to, the, to the peak.
1: Yeah, it was great. Love you. And
0: you also had an interesting interaction with the top of the political food chain, Brian Mulroney. La
1: <laughs> yes, that was that was one of those situations where sometimes you're put in a. A situation where you say, geez, I wish I would have thought of that then. You know, you always add to the fact you should have said that. Yeah. So I guess it was in 1987 in Quebec City. It was the Canada-Russia Hockey Series. And we were doing this big, big show at the Le Grand Theater in Quebec City with David Foster hosting it. And they flew in everybody. We, we had the Red Army Choir uh, from Russia. We had the Bolshoi Ballet and Other names escape me, but major Hollywood stars performing at this. So I was in the dressing room giving um, David a haircut. And uh, Mulrooney came in because they were friends. And I got introduced to him and, you know, chit-chat, blah, blah, blah. He left. So then we cut to uh, Ottawa. I got hired by the Conservative Party. I have no political aspirations. Liberal, doesn't matter. You you pay me, I'll work for you. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) I don't care. So it was another big, big show, and David was hosting that again. And during the day, there, this is when Mulrooney was leaving, you know, um, being the prime minister. So they were having votes for the other candidates to see who was going to take over, and it was Jean Charest, Kim Campbell were the front leaders. So during the day, they brought in all the different leaders from across each province uh, to measure their eyeline on television. So long story short, at the end of the day, Mulrooney's the last one in comes in with his security details surrounding him. He goes up on stage. They measure him, blah, blah, blah. He leaves. I got probably 100 people coming through hair and makeup that evening. and I got to get people started. You know, and we have to wait till they finish. And then he, he comes off the podium, coming down. He's walking by me. He's got maybe 15 of his security people. And he looks over. And I, it was in the Ottawa Civic Arena, I think we were shooting it. And I'm leaning on the boards. I got a pair of sunglasses on. And he breaks camp, and he comes walking right towards me. And he's got his hand out, and he's shaking my hand. And he goes, I know you from somewhere. And out of my mouth came, and you are? I <laughs> and he had this look of horror on his face. That What do you mean you don't know who I am? I'm the prime minister. And uh, then I said, sir, I said, you've got a very, very good memory. And I said, it was 1987, Quebec City, David Foster. He goes, that's where I know you from. Uh, wow. Yeah, so, yeah, it was
0: kind of funny at the time. <laughs> And you uh, mentioned Alan Thick. What were your interactions with Alan Thick wow. over the years?
1: I knew Alan when he first came to Toronto from, I think, Elliot Lake, Kirkland Lake. Um, he was about 18 years old, and Alan then he looked like I don't know if you remember the old TV series, My Three Sons. Sure, yeah, the little Ernie with the Coke bottle glasses, the the haircut. Well, that was Alan.
0: Whoa. That's what he looked
1: like. And his first job was, back to Caruso's, we used to do the hair for the Miss Canada pageant.
0: Okay. And
1: Alan's, Alan got a job sitting on the bus with the, the contestants, and he had a, an old wooden guitar, and he would play folk songs to entertain them. <laughs> that was his first job. And then he got a job with Blybeard and One Thing After Another and, you know, became hugely successful. I mean, Alan was a great talent. You know, no doubt about it. Look what he did. I'm still in touch with his brother, Todd, who okay. you know, has um, America's Funniest Video, was his. And yeah, so, you know, the Fick, Fick family, yeah, I, I've known for many, many years and great respect for them.
0: I'm going to throw a curveball at you, Gary. This isn't one I, person I expected to ask you about. From Happy Days, from Karate Kid, Pat Morita. How did you interact with Pat Morita?
1: We had him on Bazaar. And him and John were very tight friends. And I guess when you, 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 you have this premonition of what Pat Morita would be like was his character in um, The Karate Kid. You know, this docile little, you know, man. But he's so unlike that. He's one of those eight to the bar, bebop, lubop, daddy-o jazz guys who wow. is just too, he's too hip for the road, Pat. And you just don't expect it to come out. So one night we're sitting in the Royal York Hotel where the cast and crew of Bazaar stayed the first year or two. And, um, we might've had a few cocktails, John, Pat, and myself, and it's getting late at night and he's got to catch a flight to Los Angeles in the morning. And as you know, in some hotel rooms, they have those really chintzy velvet paintings, you know, that just, uh, like, Whoa, you know, was that a dollar 98 you got it for? And so he kept saying, man, I love that painting. I love that painting, man. So I guess it's about two 33 in the morning and. He's got to go because he's got to catch a little sleep, catch a flight to L.A. John and I decide, hey, let's take the the painting off the wall, send it to the airport waiting for him so he could have it. <clears throat> so we got it off the wall. I think we packaged it up. I, I can't recall if we ever sent it, but we were going to so he could take it home. I hope no one from the Royal York is listening. <laughs> 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 it's a painting's missing, you know it's me. <laughs>
0: been revealed here
1: <laughs> yeah so yeah what a wonderful wonderful man very
0: funny and i and i think you had a a, a warm-up a, a front row seat to a warm-up on the piano by none other than mr ray charles
1: oh yeah we had him on uh on super Dave. uh god we had everybody on super day but yeah what it what a treat to watch ray uh at the piano during rehearsals you know just standing there and him going uh with the band telling i mean he didn't miss a beat you know he the drummer, he said, no, you're off that beat. The mm. the singers, yeah, so... <coughs> excuse me. Um, Yeah, what a treat it was to meet Ray Charles. But, you know, Jerry Lee Lewis, same thing. We had him on Super Dave. And I was told to... Watch, like they, they brought him there in a limo. We shot it up in Markham, at the Markham Theatre, um, for the studio stuff, one year. For, And I was to- asked, please keep your eye on Jerry, because he's been known to leave the studio and not come back. <laughs> That's... So we sent the limo driver away. So that way he couldn't escape Markham because he'd be in the middle of up school. <laughs> Good then. idea. Because there was nothing in Markham in those days except the theater. So, yeah, I got to spend a lot of time with the killer. Yeah, it was uh, it was an education.
0: And uh, another uh, another guy who's got an outsized personality was uh, Don Rickles. Oh, God. Yeah, we had him on um, Bobby
1: Vinton's show. And uh, he was ready to go on. And, you know, Don doesn't have much hair. But he had a few, and he sweats profusely. So I'm standing there, you know, about three feet from him. And I look over, and he had a little tuft of hair in the front sticking straight up like alfalfa. So I walked over to him. He had no idea who I was. And I licked my fingers, and I whacked his forehead and put the hair down. And I got one of those great Rickles looks from him. I know what he was going to say, but he didn't say it. Thank God, because I think it would have been an F word. What? But uh, yeah, Rickles,
0: you're you're one of the few to give it to Don Rickles. Yeah, I got to slap Don Rickles in the head. <laughs> and another guy who uh, had some interesting words for you was uh, Milton Berle of all people.
1: So Uncle Milty. yeah, we, we I can't remember the show. It might have been a Vinton show, some other thing. So we had him uh, in in the studio. There's um, like TV monitors, and the guys in Video Central had is hooked into the baseball game. Must have been. World Series time, and the Los Angeles Dodgers are on. So in comes Burl. I'm standing there alone watching a few innings of the game, and he comes up to me with his cigar, and he goes, what's the score, kid? I said, uh, I'm sorry, sir. I don't know. I just got here. And he looks at me, and he goes, go yourself. I thought, my God, excuse me, sir? I mean, it was almost an honor to be told to go yourself by Milton Burl. <laughs>
0: That's uh, that's that is one memory. Yeah. Not many of us. Yeah. Would react I, to. I I wasn't
1: offended. I took it as an honor almost.
0: Now, Gary, another gentleman that you've had interactions with, and I believe uh, he's also friends with John Viner was Bert Reynolds.
1: Yeah, boy, what what a what a wonderful man Bert was. We had him on Sunny and Share. Um, I really never knew him that well. I met him a few times, but from what John tells me. You know, he's just the most sweetest man. He's very loyal to all his friends. He hires them for jobs. Um, Yeah, I was impressed. He was a big guy, too. I didn't realize how tall um, Mr. Reynolds was. But, yeah, I I didn't have a big encounter with him, you know, a few times here and there. But, uh, yeah, I admired the man. You know, no doubt about it. It was Burt Reynolds.
0: (laughs) Top of the heap. From the world of talk shows, Ed McMahon and Jay Leno. What were your encounters with those gentlemen?
1: We had them on Bobby Vinton also, um, more so at McMahon. Um, at the end of the the day, we had to um, um, get Mr. McMahon back to uh, the hotel in downtown Toronto from the Scarborough Studios. So I needed a ride back, so we shared the limo together. And out of his uh, carry bag that he had with him, he pulls out a bottle of scotch. And so <laughs> we literally sat in the back seat all the way from Scarborough to downtown Toronto, demolishing this bottle of scotch. And I mean, I'm not a drinker, but I had a few and Ed had more than a few. And I mean, it was like, you know, here's Ed. But you know, just fell out of the limo. But yeah, it was it was great to meet them. You know, you watched the Tonight Show as a kid. Sure. You know, now you're sharing cocktails with Ed.
0: And and how about Jay Leno?
1: Um he was starting his career then, basically. I mean, you know, he wasn't as well known as Jay Leno is now. You know, we had him on, he came in, did his bit on the show and left. I mean, you know, but he he was nice. I mean, he was, a lot of these people, there's no attitude. Very few of them came in with, you know, know who I am. No, I don't. And I don't care. Um, You know, I said, do you know who I am? Uh, But yeah, Jay was, you know, they're all really nice people in those days we had on the shows. It was a pleasure to work, with all these stars. I was you know, a little really,
0: surprised. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah,
1: I, I, I really didn't have, I, I won't even say, but I, I, I did have a few problems with a few people. You know, uh, I also worked with Shelly Winters, who I found hilarious. We had such a great time uh, with Shelly. Yeah. Uh, she came into the dressing room early in the morning and asked if anybody might have a, uh, a bottle of vodka anywhere for later. I said, yeah, well, <laughs> you can probably get it to the studio for you, honey. Yeah. You know,
0: You were uh, part hairstylist, part fixer.
1: Yeah, G. Chow and hairpist.
0: (laughs) Now, Gary, uh, in the world of sports, I was surprised uh, because I didn't know hair was important to them when they're fighting for their lives. But boxers, Evander Holyfield and George Foreman you worked with.
1: Yeah. Wow. What a treat. Boy, what big guys, too. Yeah, we had uh, Holly. Well, Bob Einstein was a major sports fan. Okay. So he loved having these sports guys on the show. So we did a sketch, um, and he had to have at one point suddenly a Don King hairdo on his head. You know, from his bald head to suddenly this this thing that springs up, this yeah. big hairdo. So you know, it wasn't easy making a Don King wig, which I did anyway. Hollyfield had it on, and I, I remember sitting there during lunch, and he and and we were shooting outdoors somewhere in a boxing ring they set up, and. And he was so fast, to would be a fly flying around. And before you can blink his eye, there goes, he's got it in his hand. I figured, oh my God. I mean, this guy was so powerful. And Yeah, I was a big Hollyfield fan. And George, what can you say about George Foreman? You know, just a big hunk of a nice man
0: Yeah. that you wouldn't
1: want to get hit by. Nope. But yeah, I, I got a few pictures of George and I going toe to toe. I figured, boy, if this guy ever hit me. It'd be from here to next week
0: but yeah, yeah he's got, he's got a good personality he's, oh he's known God, as a does teddy he have there. a
1: personality yeah yeah he is you know but you put the gloves on and they change
0: absolutely they click that switch weak man now Gary uh, as, a, as a child of the uh, 70s and TV I have to ask you about working with Tony Dow and Jerry Mathers, Wally and the Beave from Leave it to Beaver.
1: Yeah, we had, uh, it was David Steinberg was hosting this show we shot at Global TV. Um, And it was like a a phony award show we did. So they actually had, you know, Wally and the Beave on who, you know, I grew up watching and um, I I had a great afternoon with Tony Dow. One of the most and he's, unfortunately, I know he's very sick right now and God bless you, Tony. I hope you beat it. Um, but he, um, at the time, he was, he's a wonderful artist, sculptor, but he had a deck company. He was a Dr. Deck. He built decks for people. That was his job. He was like a carpenter. Um, he's just a wonderful, sweet, down-to-earth guy. The beaver, mm. uh, i got to be honest, he had the personality of a chair. <laughs> he was just sort of there, the beaver. You know, well, not the most outgoing uh, of people.
0: He was, but, he was a uh, cute kid. Yeah, he fit you, the bill.
1: Meeting your childhood uh, heroes. It's like when I worked with Captain Kangaroo. Um, yes. Like, wow, it's the captain. Yeah. And and unfortunately, I was a little disappointed. Him and George Goble, we had on a show. And, and uh, I think the captain might have had a, a little too much libation one day. And I was so disappointed that I grew up watching this man loving the captain. There he was in full regalia, the wig, the, you know, and, he was having some fun that day, we'll say.
0: Well, Gary, you bring up an interesting point, which is sometimes the people we see as heroes or look up to, when you actually meet them, it's, it's a horrible, It's either uh, verifies how you thought of them, or it's a horrible disappointment to meet them in person.
1: Yes, it's so true, isn't it? As in life, I mean, with other people.
0: Now, yeah. Sally Struthers played Gloria on All in the Family. Yeah, I <laughs>
1: well, I mean, I got to know the cast all and the family because they worked right next to us in the studio. <clears throat> so at CBS Television City, the rehearsal halls are way. I mean, it's a massive complex. Rehearsal halls are on the other side of the building on the top floor, and uh, Sally would be up there, and I'd be walking through the hallways going to our rehearsal hall, and she'd go, "Hey, hey, Gary, you got any change on you?" I go, "Yeah, what do you need?" <laughs> she, and she she always borrowed quarters from me for the vending machine so she could buy a chocolate bar. <laughs> she never did pay me back. <laughs> and I think her salary was a lot more than mine.
0: Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, another uh, uh, actress that I want to ask you about, because she kind of had share like straight hair, Jan Smithers, W. K. Oh in Cincinnati.
1: How can you not love her? What, I mean, you know, it's almost like when you ask people when they were young, who'd you like better? Uh, Veronica or Betty in the Archie comic books, right? Yeah. So it was the same thing on WKRP. You know, and uh, I think most people really, and Lonnie was fabulous, but Jan Smithers had that sweet look, and she was just this sweet when I met her. You know, I absolutely adored her, you know, doing her hair. She was just very thankful that someone was doing it for her, and, you know, yeah, she was nice. Yeah, we hey, had so hey. many people out at the, the at CFTO and in those days. I mean, you know you'd come to work in the morning and, and there'd be elephants tied up in the back lot, there'd be tigers in a cage, there's Billy Graham going to do something, and it was an amazing place. You know, <laughs> Ethel Merman, Ethel, I love dearly, you know, no business like so. She was great, and she so I used to do hair, and she used to call me Sunny Boy, and she'd stand up and whack me in the chest with her purse. And she goes, Come on, Sunny Boy, let's go, and I had to carry her purse to set. Oh, yes, Miss Merman, right with you, Miss Merman. <laughs> I mean, you know, legends.
0: I I have to tell you, Gary, it sounds like an SCTV skit. If I didn't, if you hadn't lived it for real, I would have thought this was some kind of skit.
1: Well, yeah, but you know, the the people you meet in this business, I mean, you know, I mean, I think I may have mentioned to you, Andrew, before um, that, you know, I ended up being the president of Electric Light Orchestra. You know, here's this little kid from Toronto, and now I'm head of ELO for their (laughs) Canadian tours. And uh, it was great in those days because I could phone up any um, production company that was putting on, I don't care if Genesis was here, the Stones, whoever, you phone up, hey, Gary Chown, Polygon Publishing, Switzerland, ELO, Uh, how many backstage passes do you want? How many tickets do you need? I mean, it was great, but that didn't last long. We we had a little problem with one of the promoters here in Canada, had a little tax issue. So, yeah, but, you know, still you end up in all these situations that, you know, hey, I just cut hair for a living.
0: (laughs) Well, Someone who, someone who took on your role for a brief period. She's famous for being on the cover of, uh, I believe it was Vanity Fair. She was giving a barber chair shave to Cindy Crawford, Canadian Chanteuse KD Lang.
1: Yeah, we had her on a bunch of shows, and she used to ask me if I could shave her sideburns uh, like a man. So I used to give her <laughs> okay. man sideburns. Yeah. What a talent, huh? KD Lang, boy. Yeah, so I took a razor and just, you know, trimmed her. Her sideburns, and gave her men sideburns.
0: He <laughs> could do all kinds of hairstyles. Hair by gear. <laughs> uh, another great talent, Feliz Navidad. Fame. He's oh, a dear friend of yours, Jose Feliciano. Friend,
1: Jose. Wow. Yeah, I've um, I've been to Jose's house when he lived in Orange County, LA. We hung out there, and you know, you listen to him play for himself. You know, I once saw him play uh, a 12-string Spanish classical guitar. He played malagueña, which very few people can play with two hands. Jose puts one hand in his pocket and plays the 12-string guitar malagueña. <laughs> Um Just the most wonderful, wonderful man and his wife, Susan. I'm still in touch with them all the time. They live in Connecticut. Um just one of God's special talents. I mean, just sit down and watch this man's fingers play and his voice and his body of work. And, you know, considering where he came from, wonderful family, and it's great now is all Jose's kids play in his band. They're on tour again. Luckily, oh, wow. he's on tour because, you know, it was tough sit for a guy like that who's on the road 300 days a year. You know, I mean, Jose plays soccer stadiums with 85,000 people in Latin America. He's a god, Yeah. you know? So, it- yeah, so I'm I'm very close to Jose.
0: Gary, you've had loyal clients from cradle to coffin. In fact, you had one instance where you actually did a hairdo for a regular client who had passed away.
1: Yes, uh, actually, it's happened twice. I've. Um, it's very hard. But it's an honor to be asked to do it, mm-hmm. you know, to go to the funeral home and and make them look good. You know, once I did it uh, for a lady, uh, it was actually a, my father phoned me once years ago and had a girlfriend who passed away and asked me if he said, her family doesn't like the way that the, the staff hairdressers did her hair. I said, and he said, can you go do something? And I remember going into this funeral home and they escorted me in and there she is laying there. And and this gentleman standing behind me, who looked like Lurch from the Munsters of the Adams family, was over. I said, sir, you got to just back off a little. This is too weird. I mean, this guy was right out of central casting and uh, they left me alone in the room. And the hair was cold and clammy. And I figured, mm, I'm not, I'm not sure. So I didn't know what to do. So I literally picked it up and I took my scissors and cut all her hair off and shoved it underneath. I had no choice. And then I pinned it and then I just left. And I remember going to a bar next door and had a cocktail or two to calm down. But yeah. So yeah, that was fun. Corpses.
0: It's a bit of an experience that you didn't expect to have. No, I
1: didn't never want to go through that again. Like I said, it's actually an honor to be asked that. Sure. You know, Make them look good for their final passage.
0: Now, Gary, Cher is now 76 years old. Does she remain your absolutely favorite client? Without a doubt.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's no doubt because the memories and and the work that I did on her, I could probably never do that again. There's those hairdos. Mm -hmm. Like you said, when you're 17, you have no fear whatsoever. And uh, you could whip now. No, I I honestly don't remember the last time I stepped inside a TV studio. Yeah. You know, and then the last time I ever got called to do something, it was for a, a very name brand product or I won't mention. They called me in if I could do his period piece. I went in and we looked at the producer and I figured, I have phone messages older than you. I haven't <laughs> returned yet. I thought to myself. He's got his baseball cap on sideways. And he says, I want to shoot this like a period piece. You know, then like the 1960s. And I'm thinking, oh kid, no, 17th century renaissance is a period piece. Sixties yeah. not yet. And so I said, What are you what are you paying? And he threw me a number and I got up and I looked at him. and I said, if you're you're paying peanuts, phone a monkey. And I left.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't want to say Gary's a diva, but uh, you had to set him in his place. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Now, uh, apparently, modern news or modern day news is that Cher refuses to wear her hair today naturally, as so many of us did during and since the pandemic. Going gray is not for Cher. What would you advise her about that statement? Stick to your guns, honey. (laughs) Just keep it dark. You know, no.
1: I I don't even call it gray anymore. I call it executive blonde. Or or just tell people you have sparkles in your hair. Or just blame it on them. Say, look, see that gray hair there? You caused it, okay? No, no. Share, share. She should never, ever look anything else but share. Let her age gracefully, but with a little help from a a bottled color.
0: you got to be yourself. you got to be yourself. Gary, as we wrap up, thank you very much for your time and all these great stories. When you look back at your whole career, you were basically self-educated. School gives you the facts and figures, but life gives you lessons. How do you look back at all your varied experiences?
1: Um, boy, that's,
0: that's a tough one, Andrew. But Yeah, I'm, I am blessed
1: that I had this opportunity in this life to, to do all these things that you know very few people get to do. Meet the people that I've met. And, you know, I'm still doing it. I'm still at the salon every day and continuing to meet people. And, you know, you got an edu- It's a different type of education listening to. Uh, it's, I have so many clients who are so smart. I'm, you know, I got to try and hold my own with them. But wow. But yeah, I've, I've been blessed. I'm lucky. It was one hell of a career, I'll tell you that.
0: Absolutely. And that's why yeah. I think it's great you use that term a therapist. It covers yeah. all the facets I get, of your I job. give people herapy. <laughs> Now, Gary, it was great having you and speaking to you. Where can we go to get our hair styled by Gary Chowan?
1: You can find me in uh, Yorkville at 112 Schollard Street. The salon is called Studio 91. You can find it on my website, GaryChowan.com, all small casing. Fabulous. And the stories on there you can read and stuff we may not have touched on here. I want to do another one of these with you.
0: There's so much more I can do. I think there are more chapters to this story, so I do appreciate it. I, I wish you an excellent summer, and thanks again, Gary.
1: Andrew, it was a pleasure talking to you. Much success in your podcast. Um, I will be listening to all of them from here on in.
0: Thank you very much. And to you, the listener, we thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends podcast. On behalf of Gary Chowan, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo.